The Crown Countdown U Roundtable is now in session on the TSN Radio Network. And it is the final roundtable until mid-August here on KCU Radio on the TSN Radio Network, brought to you by Crown Produce. So for this, we decided to bring in our own designated loudmouth, Gord Randall, uh, who's usually in the editorial position. Uh, Gord, good to have you on the roundtable. Good to have you, Jim, but I thought that you were the designated loudmouth. No, no. I, <laughs> we take turns. I, we take turns, yeah, yeah. And, and those turns can be uh, taken, oh, about once every 30 seconds. Mm, that uh, works. Yeah. Hang on whether we're facing a right-handed or left-handed pitcher. <laughs> Uh, let's, let's move on. Let's move on to the CFL draft because I know you did some great work on the CFL draft, uh, Gord, for our, uh, preview show, uh, on, uh, KCU TV. And, you know, you were the one that came out and said that there would be two Canadian trained receivers taken in the first round. Did you even though think that we would have two Canadian trained receivers taken in the top five positions? Uh, well, I kind of did. Um, the way I, the Lions picked did not surprise me. They were up at three. I felt like they would choose their preference of those top two receivers on the board. Now, I went in the other direction with that. I thought that Nate Bahar was a closer comp to the guy they were losing in Sean Gore. So I thought that they might prefer him. Uh, they decided that they preferred to preferred Danny Vandergort instead, which is great. And I actually thought that Hamilton was going to pick a receiver right after them, hoping that it was Vandervoort, but willing to take Bahar as well because they don't know what's going on with Andy Fantuz. They don't have – that's probably the one uh, traditional national position they don't have a lot of depth at right now. So I actually felt that both those guys would go within the top four. And uh, I know that one of our colleagues, who shall remain nameless, thought that was a bit of a stretch – but uh, I'm I'm probably one of the least surprised people out there that both of these guys went as high as they did. And, and I'm with you. And I, I don't know how many times over the last few weeks when we're doing this, uh, I was saying, you know, I've, I've watched U Sports, CIS, CIAU long enough, and CFL that, you know, if, if these two guys weren't both first-round draft picks, I think I've been watching the wrong sport for the last few years. Um, th- th- these guys are just absolutely spectacularly talented, different style receivers, but both very, very, very good, and both have very good upside. Maybe Bahar's upside is a little higher. Maybe Vanderwert's a quote-unquote safer pick, but both are going to play in the CFL for a long time. So it, it doesn't surprise me even slightly uh, that the, the two guys uh, who are both going to be very dynamic within the red zone uh, are going to be playing in the in the CFL, and we're both first round picks. So I'm with you 100, percent Gordy. I just I didn't see why uh, some of the mocks early on had had neither one of them in the first round. That didn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Well, and and one of the things I heard leading up to the draft about Nate Bahar in particular that surprised me was that I heard some rumblings that some of the teams didn't really like the way he came across in interviews. Uh, now I'm not a football talent evaluator, and I I don't know a lot of the in depth stuff about psychologically what they're looking for here but knowing Nate a little bit myself having had some interactions with him that shocked me and I'm glad that that didn't make him fall uh very far because I I believe that he will succeed at the next level here but but if you talk to Steve Samara and I, I you know I write for OUA.ca and 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 speak to to, to go smart a couple of times a year is one uh, one for a, a preview uh you know of, of each team and I can't tell you how 
glowing he is in his comments about him, not only as a receiver, but as a person. And he said he's got a very big personality, and to some it comes across as cocky, but he's not. He's just a, a really confident kid. Um, so maybe that's where some people had him rub them the wrong way. Maybe because they didn't know enough about him, but you know these guys are interviewed so much, and coaches are talked about. You know, U sports co- uh, coaches are talked about, uh, are talked to rather so much by scouts. You think that would come out, but uh, if there's a way that it maybe that was a negative, that would be the only one that I could think of. And Mike, we've had him on the show before on the yeah. on the TV version of the yeah. show, and he was a fantastic interview. Absolutely. And if there's anything that we need to do in Canadian football right now, it's have a little bit of salesmanship and have a little bit of sizzle to the steak. And that is what Nate Bahar brings. Fans in Edmonton are going to love this guy. Absolutely. If, if he can play the way he's capable of playing, he's going to produce on the field and he's going to have a little sizzle to go with the steak. And there's nothing wrong with that. The other thing I really like about Nate Bahar, too, is that coming into that Carlton program, as a brand-new program in its infancy, mm-hmm. he was thrown into a bit of a leadership role right from the very beginning and has as much experience, if not more experience, than anybody else in this class at having that leadership position and having some times, frankly, where he ended up having to carry his team on his back. And this was a guy, you know, if we're going to go down history books, um, what you mentioned he was a first-year guy with Carlton. Um, here's, here's a team that you knew they were going to get the rear ends handed to them the first couple of years, and the first year specifically they did. But here's one of the highest recruited kids in the province from London, and he decided to go to a team that had no hope of winning in the first year or the second year or likelihood the third year, and he could have gone to Western really, really easily and decided, no, I don't want to hop on the bandwagon. I want to build it. And I, I think that's absolutely a testament to to what this kid's character is all about. I want to shift it up a little bit to my biggest disappointment of the draft. And I think it says something about the CFL going into a post-John Cornish era. Uh, Andrew Harris really being the only Canadian running back left standing. When Johnny Augustine, who dominated the combine, somehow does not get drafted. There were only two real running backs that were drafted in this CFL draft, and how Augustine could not be one of them completely baffles me, Gord. I'm shocked by that, and I'm shocked in particular that Winnipeg, with the aforementioned Andrew Harris, didn't take a mid-round pick on Johnny Augustine to build their depth at that spot, because we saw them go with just two national offensive linemen last year, making use of that ratio flexibility that Harris offered them, I felt like they would build up the depth of that spot, especially when Augustine started falling. I mean, when you get into those fourth and fifth rounds, you're seeing teams that are just swinging for the fences with picks. I'm surprised that that team in particular, and I liked a lot of what Winnipeg did. Uh, Mm -hmm. I talked to a couple of supporters, and I've told them I really like what they did, but that surprised me that they didn't pick up Johnny Augustine when he started falling to the mid and late rounds. And the, the problem with not having, for those who don't follow the CFL, the problem with not having the, the Canadian backup to the Canadian starter is you have to make other changes uh, if you want to sub a guy in. I remember when, when Jesse Lumsden was starting in Hamilton, they didn't have a Canadian backup for him. And what they would do is if, if they needed to take Lumsden out, even for a player three, he'd come out and so would an American offensive lineman. 
and an American running back would go in, and he'd be joined at the hip, essentially, by a Canadian offensive lineman. So they had they had to make the switch for switch, not just for position, but for ratio purposes. They had to have to sub in an American. Well, you got to make another change somewhere else. So it makes a hell of a lot of sense, maybe too much sense, that you, that you have a, a, a really good uh, young Canadian running back in Johnny Augustine backing up Harris. It made too much sense. Maybe they figured they could sign him afterwards. Maybe they got a uh, had a hunch that nobody else was going to pick him because there wasn't really a need. So maybe maybe he, that's where he's going to sign. As, as of the time that we're putting the show together, he had not signed anywhere. So uh, I, I hope he signs very soon, and I hope it's with a team that's going to give him a fair chance to start. Well, or at it, least address. Well, usually uh, you get into situations with Canadian running backs, especially on the three-down side of the game where they're used mainly as running backs and pass pro isn't something that is yeah. really dialed up with them. But Augustine was pancaking guys in one-on-ones at the Combine. And How he's more did... than willing to pl- – and he wants to play specials. Yeah. Like that, that's the other thing. That, oh. he's, a, he's a hell of an athlete. Um, you think that he'd be able to, 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 to find a home somewhere on special teams. So – I don't. I don't know. I just, I'm. I'm with you and Gord. I just. I don't get this one. Gord, is the Canadian running back dead in the CFL? Then uh, is it, is it going to be that much harder for uh, running backs coming out of U Sports or even the NCAA to uh, find a way onto a CFL lineup? Well, I, I think that this we've been talking and debating that storyline around for as long as I can remember. I mean, the the only two Canadian running backs to really make a consistent mark in the league in the last 15 years or so have been Jesse Lumsden, who universally is considered probably the greatest CIS running back of all time. And then Andrew Harris, who's kind of an anomaly that slipped through the cracks and, and cut his teeth and almost got cut by the BC Lions two or three times and managed to turn things around and, and make his mark that way. But it's, it's the exception to the rule, these guys, uh, and that's been for a while now, so I don't know this is a new development to say that. But it's also when you know when they brought Cornish up here, the same thing. Here's a guy when he was at Kansas was better known for his special teams play than his running ability. Uh, that's what was going to get him into the NFL, and it was almost like okay, uh, Barker was the general manager at the time, uh, who was really high on him before the draft. Uh, but I, I don't know if in his wildest dreams he'd expect Cornish to, to pull off the career he did. So even the guys that are pro CFL in a non traditional quote unquote Canadian position in that league uh there aren't a lot of guys who are willing to go outside the box and um we've seen three definite difference makers even though one was you know had his career cut short by injuries um there have been two difference makers in the last decade and there are more kids if they're given a chance that can at least play at the cfl level there's no question about that gord what's your uh, other uh, biggest surprise of the cfl draft uh, some people might point to the herdman's going uh, sub 50 uh, in terms of uh, being selected in the draft. I, I was actually not all that surprised by that. Um, you know, their uh, their combine numbers weren't all that impressive. Uh, any other surprises for you? Well, with the Herdmans, the thing that was most surprising for me is that uh, Justin went before Jordan with teams valuing, uh, looked like at least, projectability above uh, college performance. But for me, by far the biggest surprise has to be this Eddie Meredith story. What a strange story this is. A guy who spent all last year out of football. It had been reported to anybody with an ear to the ground that he was retired from football altogether. It seems like Chris Jones did his homework on him uh, in Saskatchewan, talked to him multiple times, decided he was uh, legitimate about wanting to get back into football and 
spent, I think it was a fifth round draft pick on him, maybe a fourth. Um, and then all the stuff that came out afterwards, we had a couple of reports that he was down as low as 225, 230, 240 that uh, were later retracted. Chris Jones himself said, he's no, he's holding at 315. Nobody seems to know what the heck is going on with this guy. That, to me, is by far the, not only the biggest surprise, but one of the strangest stories I've seen in a few years. And, you know, they they got it was a fourth-round pick, and they got Tony O'Claire in the same uh, round. So if those two guys pan out, if, if O'Claire doesn't make it south of the border, holy smoke, could that be a good uh, good draft for the Saskatchewan Roughriders? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's, that's those are the rounds where you start to take futures. And, I, I mean, if you've got two picks in the same round, I don't know that you, you wasted on only a future asset on both of those picks because you are – like, Eddie Meredith is going to take a while to get back into it, if he ever does. So you've got two guys in that round that you can just about 100% guarantee are not going to make an impact on your team day one. And when you're the Saskatchewan Rough Riders who are, need to improve probably more than anybody else in this league for maybe Toronto, Montreal, um, like, you need some guys who are going to give you some kind of an impact in year yeah. one, I would think. And if we could give another shout-out to another guy that uh, went fairly down on the draft. I was I was happy just to see him drafted. And without trying to wait, raise uh, sorry raise the Carlton banner here again, uh, Tunde Adeleke is one of the one of my favorite guys to watch in the league over the last handful of years. Um, you know, another n- non-traditional Canadian position at DB, and all he did on specials was return kicks for touchdowns. And I ju- I'm glad somebody's giving him a chance. In this case, it's the Calgary Stampeders. I hope he makes the rosters, uh, roster, and I hope he plays. Uh, because he was just so damn much fun to watch. Uh, I, I hope he's got a good long pro career ahead of him. I was a little surprised that he went uh, two ahead of Robert Woodson, uh, yeah, the yeah. former Canada West uh, Defensive Player of the Year, great defensive halfback uh, out of Calgary, uh, who was picked with the first pick of the fourth round. Uh, let's uh, shift it back a bit to you, sports. Uh, obviously, you know, here we are. We're working hard to try to create some sort of spotlight for university sports in Canada through this radio show. Uh, I'm not sure if there's too many other media outlets that that really do that on a regular basis. It's uh, very regionalized. Uh, What, um, Gord, do you think is the biggest single challenge this year facing U Sports football, either between the lines or outside of the stadium? Well, I'm a little bit biased on this take, but based on the recent news coming out of Shaw um, and some of the rumblings around the Sportsnet deal, it's got to be finding a media platform that works for them across the country. Uh, If not to broadcast games themselves, but to at least broadcast coverage. Uh, Now, I I know that we have achieved, with the show that we put on, we have achieved a pretty diehard niche audience, and risking losing that would be possibly a death knell for the U sports level. Uh, and it, it's something that they really need to address uh, really quickly. When, when you're desperate to try and grow your brand, you need as many eyes on the product as possible. How many times do we watch a Vanier Cup, it's a great game, and we, we sit and we have a beer afterwards and go, damn, now the momentum has stopped. Now it's up to U Sports to make sure that they can get as many eyes on the product as possible. If that's doing the deal with Rogers, if that's doing a deal with TSN, if that's uh, finding a way for Shaw or some other independent uh, uh, television station, CHCH, to get more games on, 
They have to do it. You can have the best product in the world, but if nobody's watching it on television, it doesn't really matter. It becomes a friends and family league. Hell, schools are finding it difficult enough to get their, their, their current student body out to games. Why should somebody care outside the CIS or, or sorry, the U-Sports world if the people inside can't get a decent television deal done? It's paramount that that gets done. I don't care where it is. I don't care if I'm a part of it, but it's got to be somewhere on national television. Well, you got to be a part of it, Hoagie, first and foremost. But also, I've uh, talked with Graham Brown a number of times here over the last few weeks. He understands this, and he's working very hard behind the scenes to try to come up with a solution. But to place all of the emphasis on Hughes Sports, which quite frankly, only has three games to manage, and they can create opportunities for conferences uh, in the regular season and with their championships. It only goes back to those three games that they can manage. Uh, you know. So that being said, how much of the onus is on the conferences to do something about this? Like We talk about U Sports as this all-knowing being, but really it's an inverted pyramid when it comes to to its structure and where the power is. The conferences really have to step up, and the individual schools really have to step up in some sort of sense to make things happen. I agree, and that's a great segue into where I was going to go next, which is I believe that in in the vein of this more aggressive marketing strategy, that the conferences need to put together uh, consortiums to work on a cohesive marketing strategy and work on expanding uh, their ideas with regards to marketing the games. They need to recognize that the regular season schedule in these conference games are not televised products, likely, okay, and that they need to get more people into the stadium and that that's not an individual school issue, that that's a conference-wide collective issue. And now it's getting the conferences to play nice in the sandbox as well, which is never easy to do. So um, there, there is a way to get this done. There has to be a roadmap. And now it's just getting everybody to, to start following that same crooked road to the same location. Well, there may be a roadmap for interlocking play in 2018. Oh, but uh, we, Are you confident? Uh, uh, let's put it one this to, way. One to, one to ten. How confident are you that it'll get done? <sighs> oh, I'll give you a very honest answer at this stage. 6.5. Yep. Okay. Now, the heart says ten, we know. No. Why do you say 6.5? Uh, it's uh, really up to one of the parties to step up and be more assertive in this. And I won't identify which party it is. Okay. But I know there's one conference that is fully charged up and fully engaged in it. There's mm-hmm. another one who has expressed interest that doesn't know which way they want to go on it and has stalled for time. And with, is, a project, the with a project this big, you can't stall for time. It, it, it is, takes a lot to roll something like this out. Is the reason or are the reasons they're stalling for time in your eyes, are they legitimate concerns? Uh, somewhat legitimate. But, okay. you know, if you're talking about interlocking football, okay, and if travel cost is a concern, yep. why then, which which is, a, which is a legitimate concern. It's a legitimate concern. But... How can the OFC in the CJFL afford to engage in a full interlock yeah. with the Prairie Football Conference this year? <laughs> when they, I mean, these are organizations in some cases that can't afford shoelaces. 
Sure. But they can find a way to expand their game and travel and get on the road and try to grow the game and try to grow a national footprint, even even doing so without television. That They're taking a bold step forward because they know they need to take a bold step forward. The well, one thing that the one thing that has to be broken in, in all of this, and one of the reasons why I shifted back to the conferences and the schools, is that there is security in these departments, and with security you have complacency. Mm-hmm. And, and you know what? With our sport right now, there is no reason, no reason in the world to be complacent. Yeah, we got a great product, but no. We aren't drawing fans in, and if you look at the sport on a broader basis, we need to ensure that at the amateur level it's charged up and very visible so kids get involved in the game because those registration numbers are also down in a number of places across this country as well. But this is selling it, and let's say we have the Gord Randall Television Network, right? And and it's it wants to get involved with this, this game. You are going to get greater viewership if it is University of Calgary, versus McMaster, as opposed to just having an all-OUA game, all-West Coast game, all-Quebec exactly. you know, game, all-OU game. That's what works for the CF, Absolutely, yeah. and it's going. It's really going to help your numbers, and it just makes so damn much sense. And right now, we're going to, with the concept of the Northern 8, the Northern 10, whatever it may be, there are haves and have-nots right now in every conference. So it shouldn't be that difficult for the haves who have strong alumni bases to be able to go out and raise a few more bucks, go out and have another golf tournament. You know, there's there's a lot of your travel budget right there. Uh, there are ways to do this. Find those well, uh, well, uh, you know, uh, healed uh, alumnus that, that have something to do with the football program and get them involved. There are ways to do it. Is it a lot more work? Hell yes. But you know what? Doing this the right way isn't easy. It's not going to be easy, and it's not supposed to be easy. Find the people out there who give a damn about the interlock conference concept and get them involved. Gord, final thoughts? Uh, well, uh, just to pick up on the back end of Hoagie's thought there, I agree to a large extent. I actually think that the best business model would be those televised games being a combination of interconference games and some of those regional rivalries. Like, I would love to tune in and see a Laval-Montreal game if I'm out west and I'm not seeing a lot of those teams. Are there enough of you, though? Are there enough of you (laughs) to make that work? That's the question. Maybe there aren't, at least initially, but I think that's a good way to sprinkle in some of that regional content as well. The other thing that would be nice would be if schools challenge their football programs to operate independently of the greater athletic department. And I think that feeds into Jim's uh, point about there being complacency in a lot of these places. That's mm-hmm. one of the reasons I think why those junior clubs have been able to make the, inter- the uh, interconference thing work, the interlock thing work, is because those are independent businesses that need to make their business work, otherwise they fold. Well, yeah, and I think it's time to uh, start treating some of these football programs in a lot more of a business-like manner. Gord, thanks for joining us in this segment. Appreciate it, and I appreciate your uh, contributions all through the year to uh, KCU. Here, here. No, No problem, gentlemen. Much appreciated. Always love being on with you.